Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be back together around the Word of God this morning. And uh, this morning we have a great opportunity to come to uh, one of the richest passages in Scripture that we find anywhere dealing with an issue that we are very familiar with. It deals with the topic of temptation and particularly Jesus's temptation and his victory over temptation. Now, this is a a topic that is unfortunately uh, very familiar to us. It's common to man. We all feel temptations hounding us every day. We are in the constant tug of war with the world, the flesh, and the devil, setting before us temptations to pride and jealousy, to lust and conceit, to unbelief and laziness, to bitterness and prejudice, selfishness and greed. The list could just go on and on. And there are seasons of life for sure when this battle Uh, really drives us to the point of exhaustion, where we feel like all we do is face constantly the shame of our defeat, or we feel desperate searching for answers, fundamental answers on how we can overcome these seasons of our life, these temptations that we face. Now, for all of those reasons, this passage is a tremendous encouragement to us in the Lord's victory over temptation. Now, its primary uh, encouragement, we might say, is this, and it's simply the fact that the Lord Jesus faced temptation and he was victorious over it. It's incredibly encouraging for all of us who don't always do so well, for all of us who do fall into temptation, because we desperately need someone to win the battle that we constantly lose. And this passage demonstrates to us exactly how Jesus did that for us. Because you and I who are hopelessly doomed to failure in our battle with sin, you and I who stand condemned before God because of our our failures, our weaknesses, and our sins, you and I who have no hope of standing before God to give an answer for all of those weaknesses and sins, we have in this passage an incredible Uh, testimony to the one who did overcome sin and the one who God is willing to accept as a substitute for us. Now, we all understand substitutes. Most of us uh, who have been through school, we remember the days of substitute teachers when, for whatever reason, a, a teacher couldn't fulfill their responsibilities because of sickness or other burdens and obligations. The school would call in a substitute and they would fill in the role. They would accomplish the, the, the lesson plan that was laid out for them that day or the week or, or whatever. Of course, in those situations, the substitute teacher almost inevitably was less qualified, was less prepared and less effective at, at the job of teaching than the primary teacher. But in this situation, God has provided a substitute for you and I. But this was a substitute who in every way is better equipped more effective, more victorious than we could ever be. And God allows him to step into our place where we have failed so many times and earn a victory for us. Now, this is, as I said, a tremendous encouragement. Jesus's victory over temptation stands as a not only a an exchange in place, in place for all of our failure if you're willing to place your trust in Jesus Christ. But it also gives us tremendous lessons. 
It is, we might say, on our days of darkest defeat, it is our place of rest and hope, our place of peace, not that we have always been faithful in the face of temptation, but thankfully, He was faithful. When we constantly fail, we can look to Him who was Himself always victorious over sin, and we find in that the bedrock of our hope, the bedrock of our peace in the times of our failure. And we're so grateful for that truth, but at the same time, we are tired of being overcome. We're tired of finding ourselves in the circumstance where we give in to the false allurements of the world, and we're tired of getting defeated and dealing with the consequences that come from that because of our sin. And we want to know how we, too, can learn to overcome temptation. Well, even in that, the Lord gives us a tremendous encouragement in this passage in Matthew chapter 4 because through his example not only does he show us his victory over temptation that secures our peace with God but he gives us tremendous lessons on how we can learn to have victory as well and before we get into those details I I wanted to just begin by reading the passage for us in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 we read this Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is a record of one of the most intense battles that Satan ever waged against God and his kingdom as he waged it against the very Savior himself, against the Messiah, the Son of God. And the Lord responds to this battle, as I said, with all of the resources that God has given to him. He responds in all of the power of the Spirit and through the power of the Word, and he responds, we might add, within the confines, if you will, of his human flesh. This is what makes him really able to sympathize with us. Hebrews 4.11 assures us that he's not a high priest who is so aloof. He's not a God, we might say, who is so distant. He's not a, a, a being who really has no connection to us at all, but he sympathizes with our weaknesses in every way. He was, as Hebrews says, one who in every aspect or every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. One commentator says it this way, His sympathy with sinners in their trial 
doesn't depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation. Now, that's what we see taking place here. Jesus felt temptation in its fullest effect. He felt it even more full than you and I do. You say, well, how can that be? If he was God, the scripture says that he cannot sin because God cannot be tempted by evil and he cannot sin. Well, that's true, but because Jesus dwelt in human flesh, he relied on the tools and the resources that God gave him. And through that reliance, he resisted temptation by means of those resources. And he resisted it, we might say, longer than you and I ever do. He resisted it all the way to the point of victory again and again and again. Too often, you and I, when we face temptation, while we may resist it for a period of time, we give in under the strain. Jesus never gave in. And so what he experienced, we might say, was the full breadth, the full length, the full force of the temptation in a way that you and I will never experience, and yet he did not sin. So in that regard, Jesus tasted the full brunt of temptation in his human flesh. And having felt that brunt, having felt all that pain, having experienced that temptation, he can sympathize with us in what we go through in temptation. How did he earn the victory? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus, while he was dwelling on the earth, lived his life, first of all, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who's available to us. As a matter of fact, when Luke gives his account of this uh, same event, the temptation of Christ, he actually says that not only was Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness, but he, he went full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Of course, we saw last week that it was in his baptism that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, that he operated in the power of the Spirit. And it was by this Spirit that he was empowered even against temptation. But it wasn't only that, as, we'll, as we're going to see, because one of the central weapons that Jesus employs against temptation, not just being Spirit-filled, but also it was the Word of God. This, in fact, we might say, was his primary uh, tool, his primary weapon in this battle. With each one of the temptations that Satan brings to him, he responds with a simple, straightforward re uh, appeal to Scripture. If there was anything beyond that, Matthew and Luke don't record it for us. There doesn't seem to be any sort of argument, any kind of appeal, just a straightforward response to Satan, it is written. And every one of these quotations that he gives, all three of them, they come out of Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. And we'll note in a moment why this is so essential for us to understand the way in which Jesus responded and the, and the pathway, we might say, to his victory. Nothing, of course, is magical uh, about uh, any particular scripture it isn't just the recitation of the words. It is the embedding of those truths in your heart. It is the understanding of those truths. This is what the psalmist means when he says in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word or I've stored up your word in my heart 
so that I might not sin against you. So he's telling us that he, he had stored up or he had embedded or he had memorized and meditated on so many of these passages in order to give him a bulwark and a, 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 a defense against sin. This reminds us of the need for you and I to do the same thing, to remember passages that deal with, for example, God's goodness in times of trouble, God's provision in times of need, God's mercy in times of despair, passages that remind us about God's faithfulness in times of impatience, or God's promises in the times of loss. Many, many other passages that we need to store up in our hearts, passages that deal with anger and gossip and contentment and purity or whatever it might be. We need to embed these things into our heart because we need to understand they're one of the primary tools by which God equips us for the battle against sin. So here we see Jesus employing these, these uh, 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 tools, these resources that the Lord had given him, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and, and, and as we will see, they are the same tools that were available to us and to every other believer, even to ancient Israel in their time of testing. So while the situation, we might say, with Jesus is somewhat unique, and, and while the temptations he faces were uh, maybe even stronger than ours, but they were unique even to his task as the Son of God, the principles that we can glean out of this passage are timeless for us. So let's take a look at this in detail. Three temptations as we try to identify the strategies of the Lord that he had in finding victory over temptation. And the first one that we see, we could call the temptation to doubt God's wisdom. The temptation to doubt God's wisdom. And it's so critical that we, that we understand this temptation. It's critical that you understand uh, what Matthew says really right at the beginning because he tells us that Jesus was led by the, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now that may surprise you. That may not be what you would have expected from the role of the Holy Spirit to begin with, but it clearly communicates to us from the very beginning that God is ultimately in control of this whole ordeal. God is the one who is sovereignly overseeing all this. And Matthew begins by clearly telling us that this was a part of God's purpose and plan. That this was the Spirit leading Jesus in order to be tempted by the devil. God had a purpose behind this as he does behind so many other temptations, so many of our temptations. As I said, this is critical for you to understand because it's sometimes during temptation when you feel like the world is spinning out of control, when you feel like things are maybe most chaotic and, and um, most uncertain and most um, unplanned, we might even say. But God assures us that all temptations are happening within his sovereign decrees. And he has purposes through them. In saying that, let's be clear. God is not the one who does the tempting. God didn't tempt Jesus. It is clearly Satan throughout this passage 
who tempted Jesus, but God is the one who sovereignly allows Satan to tempt Jesus. The passage plainly states that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And this aligns with what we read in the rest of Scripture. James 1, for example, says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, because God can't, cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God doesn't tempt us with evil. He never entices us to rebellion. He never attempts to lure us away from righteousness. In fact, God's only desire is that we be faithful. God's only call on our life is that we would respond with truthfulness and righteousness and submission to him. But the reality is that God does allow temptations in our lives by other sources, by other means. You see this, for example, in the book of Job. Job chapter 1 and verse 9, Satan says to the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Well, God wasn't going to stretch out his hand against Job and do any of that. But in verse 12, the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him that is against his personal body, do not stretch out your hand. So here you see the Lord allowing uh, uh, circumstances, allowing, we might say, temptations into Job's life, but even then putting limits on it because he's sovereignly in control of it. Of course, the classic illustration is Joseph out of the book of Genesis, chapters 36 through 50, when his brothers, you remember, sold him into slavery in Egypt, where he suffered for years as a slave, as a, a prisoner. He suffered through various kinds of injustices, countless opportunities to grow bitter and vengeful and spiteful. And yet, in the end, when it was all said and done, he finally again faces his brothers after so many years. And what does he say to them in Genesis 50, 20? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, God allowed you to do this. You were agents that were the cause of evil in my life. That was your intent. But God allowed your evil purposes because he had good purposes. He was the one who is sovereignly in control. God often sends us, in other words, into seasons of temptation. Not that he is the one who is tempting. Those temptations arise ultimately, James says, because of desires that are in our own hearts. And he sends us into those seasons then to test, to test those desires, to test our maturity, to test where we stand before him. In fact, the Greek word, for temptation could just as easily be translated as test. You could read Matthew 4, 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Or, or we know from the rest of Scripture to be tested ultimately under the Lord's design. So this is really a passage, not just about Jesus' temptation, but a passage about testing. A passage about Jesus being tested. God will bring spiritual tests into our lives to 
to strengthen us, to grant us endurance, to grant us patience, to produce maturity in us, to bring about humility. But in the midst of all that, God never solicits us to respond to evil in any way. That is always the work of Satan and his demons or of our own flesh and our own desires and the idols that we have in our own hearts. Now, Jesus understood this. He understood this and he knew this. And one of the ways we see that he, uh, that he knew this and we see that he understood this is because when he responds to the temptations, he quotes out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8 are those uh, passages where he quotes from three times. It's a section where Moses, after having traveled with Israel for 40 years through the wilderness, is on the plains of Moab and reminding them of all of the things that the nation has been through over the last 40 years. And one of the things that he tells them is that God was deliberately putting them to the test. He was deliberately putting them through hardship to test them and to teach them, to instruct them to be obedient and trusting to Him. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, for example, He says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you that you uh, testing you to know what is in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not then down in chapter 8 verse 5 just a few verses later he says know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son the lord your god disciplines you peter craigie writing about this passage says this quote the wilderness tested and discipline the people in various ways. On the one hand, the desolations of the wilderness remove the natural props and supports which man, by nature, depends on. It casts the people back on God, who alone could provide the strength to survive the wilderness. On the other hand, the severity of the wilderness period undermined the shallow bases of confidence of those who were not truly rooted and grounded in God, end quote. This was God's purpose. This is why he had them in the wilderness. And these were the chapters, obviously, that Jesus was meditating on or even reading if he had a copy of the scriptures with him. He seems to understand very clearly that Israel had been sent into the wilderness for a test. And at the same time, he seems to understand that he himself had been sent on a similar test. He understands that Israel had spent 40 years in the wilderness, and he understands very clearly that he's been sent into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And so during this season, this is where he turns his heart and mind for instruction. He understood that God had ordained a test for Israel, and he understood that God had ordained a similar test for him. And he understood that Israel had failed the test, and he also understood why they failed, to te- uh, failed the test. At the same time, he understood that he could not, that he had to put his trust in God, who had led him into the wilderness for this specific purpose, as a part of his plan to prepare Jesus for everything that he was going to do in his 
life and in his preaching and his mission to prepare Jesus to be an appropriate substitute for us, an appropriate Messiah for Israel. So we're told that Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Matthew tells us, and then he states what might be obvious to us, but he was hungry. He was hungry. Now, we might could have surmised that, but Matthew points it out, I believe, in order to highlight the, the uh, correspondence, if you will, between what Jesus was experiencing and what Israel experienced. As a matter of fact, hunger was one of the first tests that Israel ever experienced when they were in the wilderness. If you have your Bibles, look with me back to the book of Exodus, and we can see exactly how this came about. Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. We read, uh, beginning here in verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter Therefore, it was named Mara, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Chapter 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of, uh, of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So here they make this accusation against Moses, but not only Moses, against God that he actually had brought them out there to kill them. Forty years later, when Moses is near the end of his ministry on the plains of Moab, right before Israel goes into the promised land, he writes the book of Deuteronomy. And in that book, he reflects back on their wilderness wanderings, and he reflects back particularly on this period of time. And he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man doesn't live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now that verse falls right in between the two verses I read to you earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus knew that Israel had been tested. They had been tested with hunger. He knew that they had been tested and that they failed. He knew that Israel had grumbled about their lack of food. He knew that they had failed the test, but he also knew that he wouldn't. And so after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, by the way, very few people have ever done that. We know that Moses did that on Mount Sinai. We know that Elijah did that, but a remarkably challenging test. 
After those 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, it wasn't necessarily wrong for Jesus to use his supernatural power to create food in the right circumstances. As a matter of fact, later on, he'll do that very thing. He'll create food for 5,000 people in one sitting who had gathered to listen to him on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. At another time, he'll turn water into wine. So understand that the issue is not Jesus using his power to create food. It is that in this particular circumstance, he understood what the test was. And because he was being tested with hunger, the same way Israel had been tested with hunger, he knew that just as Israel needed to wait for the Lord in his purposes, so too he needed to wait. And so Jesus' answer is straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, straight out of the context of Moses' words to Israel. Matthew 4, 4, he answers, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He understood the test. He understood God's purpose. He understood that God had led Israel into the wilderness. And when they got there and they, uh, they sort of assessed their situation, really after just a few days, they assumed that God had either made a massive mistake or worse, that God had some, some wicked, malicious plan for their undoing. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, they even said they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back from the, to the very place God had just rescued them from. They were ungrateful. They were discontent. Most of all, they were questioning God's wisdom and God's plan. Jesus wasn't going to do that. He knew God's plan. He knew that God had appointed him as the Messiah of Israel. He knew that he had a ministry in front of him. He knew that he had a cross in front of him. He knew that he had glory in front of him. All he had to do was wait. And so understanding the scripture, understanding the verse and how it applied to Israel, understanding that God was teaching them to trust in him, to trust in his wisdom. Jesus would not yield. You see, Israel needed to learn. They need to learn that when God commands and God directs you to go somewhere, to do something, your response is to obey. Any kind of shortage of what you might uh, consider to be provisions, any kind of shortage in food or funds, in um, water and provision, any inadequate lack of supplies, all of those other excuses, they don't really matter when God has commanded you to do something. As pre Peter Craigie says, God wanted them to understand that the command of God contains within it the provision of God. The most important thing for Israel to grasp was that really their ultimate existence was going to be determined far more by their willingness to do what God said than it was in them finding this day or the next day's provision. That was what they needed to focus on. And so if God brought them into the desert, they needed to follow him. 
And if God brought them into the desert, they didn't need to grumble and complain to go back to Egypt. And if God brought them into the desert, they needed to trust that as a part of his plan, he would make sure they didn't die in the desert. He would give them provision because he had already promised them they had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. So Jesus remained focused. Focused on enduring the test that God had for him rather than getting satisfaction for his temporary yearnings. And behind all this was a fundamental trust that God was in control of the entire test. The whole temptation while it didn't come from God, God was in control of it. And as I said, this is absolutely critical for you and I to understand. If we have any hope of having victory over temptation, we must grasp the fact of God's sovereignty over what we're suffering. He's watching over us. Even when we feel like things are out of control, even when we feel like things are chaotic, He controls all of our temptation. This is exactly what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with every temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God controls your temptation. And the truth is he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He will allow you to be tested. He will allow you to suffer, but he ultimately will not allow you to be abandoned. He ultimately will not allow you to be put to shame because his promises to you are true and they're good. And he's working all these things together for your good. So you go through seasons of hunger. You go through seasons of want. You go through seasons of loneliness. You go through seasons of shame. God can limit those seasons, but it's ultimately in His control, not yours. And you have to trust His wisdom to apply those limits when He sees fit. That reminds us that in the midst of temptation, the primary place that we ought to be directing our hearts during seasons of temptation, the primary place that we ought to direct our hearts is toward God and toward His goodness and toward His faithfulness. God is faithful and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. So if He's sovereign and if He's ruling over this temptation, if He can control how long it lasts, and he can limit the temptation, then all you have to do is wait for that. All you have to do is trust that. All you have to do is trust that on the other side, God has goodness for you. God has provision for you. In fact, we see all the way down at the very end in verse 11 that eventually when the devil did leave him, the angels came and they ministered to him in God's time. So when we find ourselves in the face of temptation, we need to train our hearts immediately to cry out to the Lord with affirmations of His goodness, with affirmations of His faithfulness, with ultimate trust in Him, and a desire to learn whatever we have to learn for as long as He sees fit. 
and hold on to the fact that God is good and loving and wise. Well, Satan isn't done, and we can take note of a second temptation that he hurls at Jesus. And that comes to us in verses 5 through 7, the temptation to demand God's blessing. The temptation to demand God's blessing. Matthew 4, 5, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In his attempt now to tempt Jesus, Satan quotes from Scripture, misquoting, or we might say at least misapplying, twisting it as he does so often in so many places. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, probably uh, what we know as Solomon's porch, and it would have been a 400-foot drop straight down to the Kidron Valley. That's the highest you might say, or the tallest drop that was known there in the temple. He takes them here probably because this was the place that would have been filled with with people. It would have been filled with a crowd. He could have taken them to a high mountain. He could have taken them to Mount Megiddo, Mount Carmel, Mount Hermon, even Masada. All those places would have had higher drops, uh, steeper dives. But probably uh, Satan knows that, 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 that Jesus is aware of the people's expectation. And, and particularly, there was a tradition within Judaism that the Messiah would be revealed in the midst of the temple. And so Satan brings him here, and he, he tempts him to cast himself down, quoting from Psalm 91, which is a simple promise of the Lord's protection, not necessarily a promise just for the Messiah, but a promise for all people. Psalm 91 says, for all believers who make the Lord your refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. So here he is quoting this passage of scripture, a straightforward, it seems, and simple promise, but in this situation, twisted by the enemy. God's intent, of course, when he wrote the psalm, wasn't that we would be throwing ourselves down off of cliffs. And Jesus understood that. He understood that Satan is twisting the scripture here. Satan is tempting Jesus to begin to think that somehow God must prove himself further than he already has. That in order for God's word to be believed, there had to be some sort of extravagant display Instead of simply believing the promise of God, Satan is suggesting that God would need some sort of proof of his faithfulness to his promises. This is why Satan prefaces his whole temptation with if, if you are the son of God, prove his love for you. This would would prove his protection for you. This would prove that he'll do all the great things that he says he'll do for you. You just need to find out if God really means what he says. But again, Jesus understood the game. He understood what Satan was attempting to do. Again, he understood that this was the same uh, uh, temptation. This was the same ploy that he had employed on Israel in the wilderness. And so once again, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, this time from Deuteronomy 6. Again, he says in Matthew 4, 7, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, once again, is taking his lessons from Israel in their trial in the wilderness. 
This time, as I said, coming from Deuteronomy 6.16. It was a quotation looking back once again at the Exodus event, the events particularly out of Exodus 17 when, when Israel was in the desert, they were parched with thirst. And they began to question again why Moses had brought them up from the land of Egypt to simply die of thirst. And of course, through all of this, they ultimately reveal that the problem is not just their lack of water. The problem is the whole Exodus itself, that they were questioning that. We read in Exodus 17, verse 1, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Of course, this is the event where Moses eventually brings water from the rock. But then in Exodus 17, 7, a few verses down, it says that Moses called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? You see, this was a test. They They who had just had God provide water for them a few days earlier, they who had just had God provide manna from heaven, were turning around and now questioning once again whether or not God was even among them. And here's the real issue behind the demand. After everything God has done, they were demanding more proof. Such a superficial attempt to manipulate God, to put on on trial, his faithfulness for your personal desires. In fact, they were actually reversing the sequence since it was God who was putting them to the test, yet they somehow believed that they were uh, in the place to judge God, to put God to the test. They imagined that, um, that God was the one who needed to be proved and not them. I mean, how could they possibly need more proof than God had already given them in parting the Red Sea, in bringing him out through the ten plagues, in providing them already just a few days earlier in Exodus 15, miraculously providing for them water once before. How could they really need anything else? And here they are just a few days down the road and they so easily begin to doubt him as if they were saying that all of God's work through this point is nothing We need more. We need more. They had ample reasons to trust in the Lord. But what they really wanted was control. They didn't want to wait. They wanted to force God's hand. And they were demanding that he prove himself again. They were trying to put God to the test rather than realizing that they were the ones who were under the test. Well, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses again reflecting back on that time. And this time, uh, reflecting on this testing, he reminds them of this. 
how they had put God to the test. And this, of course, is the passage that Jesus quotes in answer to Satan. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That passage in Deuteronomy 6, it, it begins actually by calling them to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and to love Him alone. And He specifically is, is commanding them that when they go into the promised land in just a, a couple of days or weeks, specifically that they need to not go after all of the other supposed gods that will be around them from all the other people, but to remember that it is God alone who provides for them. And they're not supposed to doubt God. They're not supposed to begin to turn to other gods. Moses reminds them that they should not put God to the test as they did at Massa in Exodus 17 when they didn't believe that God would take care of them, provide for them. And the, mo the point that Moses is making is don't trivialize God's care and concern as if somehow one passing day or one passing season or one occasional trial or one test or something like that is going to undo all of the things that God has already proven to you. Don't be like the people who began to put conditions on God. We'll only accept your faithfulness to us. We'll only believe in your presence with us if you, if you, uh, uh, if you give in to our demands. Don't be like Israel in Exodus 17 saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so prove it. Jesus wouldn't do this. He wouldn't take the bait from Satan. He didn't need some grand demonstration of God's power in order to believe in God's protection. He wasn't going to try to force God's hand. He wouldn't throw himself down and so put God to the test. Well, finally and quickly, we see a third temptation in Verses 8 through 11, it's the temptation to forget God's ultimate power. Or you might even say to forget God's ultimate promise. Satan takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world from a high mountain in one moment of time. And he says to him, I'll give you all of this. I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. If only you will fall down and worship me. He's offering him. The ultimate end, at least in Satan's mind, the ultimate worldwide kingdom with all of its nations, with all of its peoples. God had, in fact, already promised this to Satan. But Satan was offering Jesus a kingdom without the cross. The thing Jesus had to remember was this, though. That God could also offer this kingdom at any time. In fact, Satan was offering the kingdom, the fact that Satan was offering the kingdom, I should say, did not mean that he was offering something God could not give. And Satan was no more powerful than God to give it. In fact, he was less powerful. He was less capable, which of course he never reveals to Jesus. He just allures him with the promise. And really his powerlessness is seen 
more in what he doesn't offer than what he does. He offers these kingdoms and their glory, but he doesn't mention their allegiance and their love. Satan couldn't erase the sinful, rebellious hearts among all the peoples of the world against God and against Christ. It was, in other words, a shell of what God had to offer. It was a hoax of what God had to offer. It was like those trays of dessert, you know, that uh, at least they used to bring around in restaurants for you to be able to see. They were plastic and hard painted versions of whatever the real thing was, maybe giving you a chance to uh, make a choice of your desserts. But the last thing you'd want to do is to take the model, to take the, the hollow sham and try to feast on it when God has been preparing for you something that is ultimately true. Well, Satan couldn't offer anything but a cheap substitute. And Jesus wasn't fooled. He remembered the Old Testament and how Israel was warned time and time again not to forget the true God, not to forget the real God, not to forget that it was truly God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and it was God who established the promised land, and it was God who would ultimately give them the kingdom. Jesus remembered that Satan wasn't worth bowing to because he ultimately didn't have the power to give anything that was of satisfaction. He can display jewels that sort of sparkle, but they eventually rust away. So Jesus cites this Old Testament passage once again, reminding Israel that they, as they entered the promised land, were not to forget God. Matthew 4.10, Jesus answered him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Once again, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the passage, this time quoting uh, from back in verse 13, Deuteronomy 6.13, where again, God is telling Israel on the plains of Moab as they go in, they cannot forget the Lord their God. But telling them in verse 13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear and him you shall serve. And by his name you shall swear. Israel wasn't to forget. Moses was warning them. You're going in to inherit the land. You're going in to inherit the physical blessing for which you waited so long. But... Don't let those blessings turn your heart away from God. In other words, don't settle for the promise without the promiser. He is the source of the goodness and the blessing and your survival. So don't accept a promised land without the promising presence of God in your life. Well, this is what Jesus exactly is saying to Satan. I'm not going to bow down to you. Your kingdoms are useless to me. He says, I'll wait for the Lord and him only will I serve. Jesus understood that ultimately it was not the kingdom that he wanted. What Satan was offering him was not the kingdom he wanted. When God tempts you with whatever the desires are, when he tempts you with the 
desire for revenge, it's not the resolution that you ultimately want. When God tempts you with sexual desire, it's not the relationship that you ultimately want. When God tempts you to greed, it's not the wealth that you ultimately want. It is broken and empty and hollow. It's the, it's the, uh, the promise without the promiser. And it's temporary and fading. So Jesus understood that the kingdom without God's power working in the hearts of the people was a kingdom that was ultimately destined for destruction anyway. All of these temptations in Matthew chapter 4, they all come down to the same thing. They come down to unbelief. They come down to not wanting to believe God's goodness, God's love, God's kindness, and even God's power to bring about the protection the care, and the resolution that He promised. God obviously has many of us in times of testing. God has placed you where you are right now. And the question really is this, will you endure? Or will you get focused on your physical circumstances and begin to question God's love and God's commitment to you? He is in total control of your circumstances right now. He controls how long you will be in this test. He controls when it will end. And He will not stretch you beyond what you are capable of enduring. The challenge is this then. Will you wait? Will you respond rightly? Will you continue to train your heart to cry out to the Lord with affirmations of His wisdom, of His kindness, of His love, and of his ultimate purpose, saying, Surely the Lord is good to those who trust in him. Bow, me, bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for this word and thankful that it comes to us in times of testing and trial, thankful that we can learn so much in how we can endure temptation. How much more, though, are we grateful for the one who endured all temptation just as we are and yet without sin? Lord, we have so many failures. We have so many ways in which we have given in. When we have grumbled and complained, when we have lashed out, when we have sought after our own pleasures and our own control. All of those things, Lord, we confess them to you now. And say that we're grateful for a Savior who stood in our place, who faced temptation for us and was victorious. Lord, we're so grateful that you look, when you look upon us, you don't see our failures, but you see his victories. And that will be the place of our peace and the place of our rest. Even as we turn our hearts to you and to your goodness, looking to the day when you bring our trials and our testing to an end. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.